Good Travel and New Zealand Awaits, we're Josie Major and Debbie Clark. Welcome to Good Awaits, the Regenerative Tourism New Zealand podcast. Under the shadow of the global pandemic and climate crisis, tourism is facing enormous uncertainty and returning to business as usual is no longer an option. Our people and planet are relying on us to reconnect and reimagine. The Good Awaits podcast is a platform for the collective discovery of a new way forward. It's great to have you join us on this journey. Kia ora, ko Debbie toko ingoa. I'm Debbie Clark, founder and owner of New Zealand Awaits. Kia ora, ko Josie toko ingoa. I'm Josie Major, New Zealand Programs Manager for Good Travel. Welcome back to Good Awaits. Today we're very excited to welcome to the podcast Kristen Dunn. Kristen is the Tumuaki, the Chief Executive of Tāpoi Te Moananui Atoi, Tourism Bay of Plenty, and has worked in the tourism industry for the past seven years. Kristen is a Fellow of Marketing and holds a Bachelor of Business Studies. Prior to the tourism industry, Kristen held senior management roles at Vodafone and Woosh and had extensive marketing experience gained within DB Breweries, ASB Bank and Television New Zealand. Kristen is passionate about helping to create a sustainable future for the visitor economy in New Zealand that enhances our visitors' experience and local communities. Tourism Bay of Plenty's strategy, Teha Tapoi, is recognised as an exemplar within the sector as a framework for regenerative destination management. So listeners, I think you'll enjoy today's conversation with Kristen. I reflected last week on how it, we really need courageous leadership if regenerative tourism is going to be the way forward. And so I think today you'll hear how Kristen has been a courageous leader and continues to be a courageous leader at Tourism Bay of Plenty and how the strategy and plan that they've created there is a perfect model of what we're talking about for regenerative tourism. So we hope you find this episode enlivening and that it sparks conversations for you and your community. We invite you to consciously listen and engage with what resonates with you. Kia Kristen. Welcome on to the Good Awaits podcast. Kia ora Josie, kia ora DB. Thanks for having me. Kia ora Kristen. Great to have you here. Thanks so much for joining us. So Kristen, this, this is a travel and tourism podcast, obviously. So we, we like to start this by asking our guests to share a memorable or early travel experience that they've had and, and how that was impactful on them. Yeah, so the one that comes to mind, I was asked actually to travel to Denmark to present the love of tourism, our destination management plan uh, in Aalborg. So uh, my son, who is turning eight shortly, and husband um, got to travel um, up to Denmark via Singapore. And we spent some time in Copenhagen and then travelled through the country to Aalborg and I presented there. And because we were so close to Finland, we um, hopped across to Finland and went to Rovaniemi, which is the home of Santa Claus. Oh, and it was wonderful. really wonderful and I just count my blessings every day since uh, so we, we went to uh, Rovaniemi we met the real McCoy Santa Claus and then came back via Disneyland in Los Angeles and my son who turns eight next week I'm just so thrilled that we got to do that trip at right the right age because I just said you know who knows how long it might be before he can 
travel and do that sort of thing again. So really special, really special. Oh, that's wonderful. What a great story. Great memories you've created, right? So that brings us up to present time. Can you talk a little bit about how you ended up in the tourism industry and at Bay of Plenty? Yeah, so actually my first, no, my second job was in tourism at Rainbow's End. And I worked there as a summer a holiday job while I was studying. Um, it was a big upgrade from Food Town to markets, uh, I have to say. And I had the best time there um, under wonderful management. And we worked through the, you know, the holiday periods and a really strong customer service ethic and just really wanting to see people have a great time. And so I was there for three, four years, uh, maybe supervising in the end. And um, there were points in time where I was uh, dressed as either Ray or Bo. I don't know if you remember them, the, the kind of characters that used to wander around the park or various other costumes, uh, which I probably don't confess to too often. <laughs> but I left um, tourism there uh, then and, and went on to do a, a bunch of different sort of mainly marketing roles uh, for DB Breweries, ASB Bank, Television New Zealand, uh, Vodafone New Zealand, and then started to get more into general management. And I was chief operating officer for an IT&T company. And then decided... This Auckland lark, it's not, it's not all it's cracked up to be. This was about 11 years ago. And my sister was living in Tauranga, so we came down he- here a lot to the bay and we were like, right, let's make the move. So I left my um, full-time job, started a consultancy company called Grow, and long story short, Tourism Bay of Plenty became one of my clients. Uh, just not long after the Rena disaster had happened here in the Bay. And so I helped them work on the recovery plan and attract, attract some um, additional investment into helping the Bay recover from that first disaster. And then since then, I've been here for a few more. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, you have been. Yep. You've been through a lot, right? Mm. Yep. So since then with Fakari, um, White Island, um, we had a, a couple of cruise accidents, cruise-related accidents, and then, of course, COVID. It really uh, has been pretty challenging right the way through. But um, I love it. It's, uh, I think tourism management is an extraordinarily complex area. And from the outside, I think it's hard for people to understand just how complex it is and the range of stakeholders and all of their views. And, um, yeah. And... I think it's fair to say you've been at the same time as dealing with these huge challenges, you've been trailblazing this regenerative tourism movement in New Zealand. Could you talk to us a little bit about what led you to this way of thinking about how we use tourism for good in this way? Mm. Yeah, good question. So I obviously started with Tourism Bay of Plenty as a consultant and then joined them and part of the team and I became latterly became the chief executive so that was in uh, May 2016. So I had some background I knew kind of where we were at and and what more we might need to do when I came into the role but I sat down with 250 stakeholders and asked them really three questions which was what value do we add? Uh, If you were me what would you do? And what, what more could we be doing in order to, to deliver um, as, a, as a public servant, as a, as a public organisation, 
uh, for the community, for the industry. We got a range of, of feedback, um, obviously, on that. And one of the ones that really stuck out to me was Air New Zealand. I sat down with them and said, why don't you work with us like you do other regions? And they said, well, you have no strategy and you have no story. And I thought, hmm, fair point. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that really sort of became my main driver then was, was to create our strategy and create a, our story. I didn't know what we were embarking on when I set out, you know, to, to lead that for the organisation. Um, and so we started by putting together a framework, a strategic framework, and that was about trying to not think short-term anymore. So generally speaking, our organisations can think year to year, and we have a yearly plan, but we don't think too much um, more longer than that. And so short-termism is a is a is an issue and we need to solve that and so we wanted to create a 10-year view and we worked with Shane Volatich from Fresh Info who was amazing and right from the beginning he said to me I'm not writing this strategy for you Kristen I'm going to help work alongside you but this is yours to own and that was really important because I don't think um, you can you can outsource place strategies to a consultant it really has to come from the heart. So we created the framework and that's what signaled the change for us moving from being a promotion-only organisation. We would promote the Bay. We didn't really know who to specifically. We weren't sure how many people were coming. I'm not sure we really cared, you know, in terms of if it was too many or not um, or what value they were adding, the other visitors were adding when they got here, what was the experience. None of that was, was part of our remit at the time. So we were successful if there was growth. Are there more people coming and is there more spend and therefore we've done a good job? Yeah, so then we, we went through a process of gaining additional funding from our funders, councils, to become a destination management organisation. And at the time, over-tourism, it was a thing. Uh, and we were feeling the impacts of it locally as well. And it was relatively uh, easy in the end to convince the community and convince funders that if we as an organisation don't show katiaki for this place, then whose role is it? Who will? And of course, iwi and hapu will, but then they're not in the position to help manage tourism. So it was a year-long process uh, where we did a lot of community consultation, but we did finally get there and we received um, some additional funding in order to hire some new roles which broadened our skills out into this destination management. And then um, we were obviously at the same time trying to develop the regional story, the brand story, and then what actually are we going to do differently? And that is where I started to look globally for best practice. I knew that we couldn't be the only region <laughs> in the world who'd <laughs> ever gone through uh, where we were at or, or what we were you know, hoping to do. So. I think it's important that we do continue to look outside New Zealand. And I also learned anything I could from my regional uh, counterparts and colleagues, but I knew there was a whole world out there that had probably gone through what we were trying to go through 20, 30, 40, 50 years before us. And that's where I discovered Anna Pollock and uh, Destination Think. And both have become extraordinary thought leaders for us and 
I didn't truthfully think we'd be able to work with either of them. You know, they were these global experts. But amazing what happens when you pick up the phone and you say, hi, it's Kristen from New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) From where? Um, And from the Bay of Plenty. Um, I really love what I've read about your work. How, How could we work together on this? And they were both really uh, open to that, that concept. So uh, we started working on a destination management plan with Destination Think. And when I received the sort of final draft of it, I clearly remember being in my office one night, possibly with a glass of wine because it was quite late. It was like nine o'clock. And it needed to be finished, you know, basically by the following day. And I just was hit with this inspiration. And I just started writing. And I wrote the foreword to the plan, and it was this regeneration. And it was really inspired by things that I'd read from various other people and, and quotes that I'd read that totally resonated with me. And also from the feedback that we'd been receiving from our community through the process of putting our plan together, because it was co created. And just this extraordinary sense of love for place. And the you know, the deep sense of Taranga Waiwai and the, the knowledge, the wisdom of our um, Indigenous people, um, our Māori, to, to know, of course, it has to be long-term, way longer than 10 years we need to be planning for this place. Of course, we have to be kaitiaki. Why would you even consider being anything else? Um, of course, the environment must come first. Of course, the people must come second. And so I guess it was this combination of hearing other, other nations, other places say this is really important and then hearing our own people say this is really important, that it became the most important thing that, that we could do. And so I wrote the, the foreword to the, the plan and sent it back to our, um, the group who were working on it and Destination Think came back and they said, are you sure? Because this is really pushing the boat out. Like if you go here, you're really going to go there. And we've kind of tried to temper this down to something that might be acceptable to stakeholders. If you go there, like you're going to have to really stand behind it. And I said, we're going there. So uh, it felt good to, to push the, the boat along there and then um, of course our work with Anna Pollock sort of unfolded even more as we wanted to really genuinely understand what does this mean yeah yeah well and it's just, there's so much to unpack in what you just said Kristen there's so so many layers and so many pieces it's it's fantastic but it really you know it really came through the love of place right and that only people from that place can be the ones it can't be an outside consultant necessarily to tell you how to do it certainly there is outside wisdom as well as local wisdom that we should be incorporating but it really is up to those in the place to be the ones to define who you are and or who we are and what we want Right. Um, Yep, definitely. As part of the co-creation process, we went looking for a human truth because you've got industry and you've got community and you've got iwi and hapu and you've got funders and you've got visitors, of course, and they all seem to have quite disparate views. But actually the one thing that we found that united us all was this love of place and then the deep desire to see it protected for future generations. 
And it didn't matter how many jobs, it didn't matter how much visitor spend, it didn't matter how many heads on beds, actually no one cared about that anywhere near as much as they cared about this place that they love being protected for future generations. And so regeneration is just the kind of logical, I guess, Western word for, for that. Stewardship, right? Love of place and how do we steward it? I always at pains to to say that this isn't a concept from me or or any of the regenerative specialists. It is an indigenous wisdom, and not just from Maori people, but from the indigenous people all around the world. And so, this is actually a, a re-elevation of that thinking into mainstream destination management. So. Talk to us about your place, Bear Plenty. What makes it so special? Mm, it does. I think it's the you know the open seas, fertile lands. We are the Bay of Plenty, um, the home of kiwi fruit, uh, manuka honey, avocado. From a horticultural provenance perspective, we um, that land is so important to us, right? It, I mean, it drives so much economy, but it also feeds and nourishes our people and people of New Zealand and a lot of people internationally as well. So that then the, the, the oceans, the beaches, 125 kilometres of pretty pristine coastline, um, you know, let's hope, pray to God that it stays that way um, with the decisions that, that we make and the extraordinary marine life that, that live under that great blue, you know, that we can't even begin to, to comprehend. Our Māori culture, it's not seen well uh, at this point, but we've certainly been working really hard towards making that a much more visible, authentic part of, of your experience here in the Bay. And then the natural landmarks. I mean, we've just got extraordinary nature. And it's in our nature as our brand proposition. Uh, and that's sort of, I guess, both about our, our environment but also about the nature of our people, the Manaki, uh, which, is, which is really important. We've been a much-loved tourism destination for many generations and you know, we already have a very strong domestic market. We're an intergenerational place to holiday. You come with your parents and grandparents and you know, grandchildren and nieces and nephews and you know, that's been happening for generations here. So. Lots of lots of extraordinary uh, things, and I love the work we did with Destination Think around DNA, and it really our community really connected to that because it was trying to capture who are we authentically and truly in the world, and who do we want to be, and what are we proud of, and and what don't we want to be, um, and just that that concept that just be just be you, like just be us. We don't have to try and be somebody else. Um, and if we're authentically ourselves, then the people who come here will be coming because who we are. And therefore, they'll, they'll already be the right type of visitor for us. I'd like to go back to how do we define or talk about or communicate regenerative tourism to people for who this is a new concept. This must be an experience that you've had many times, Kristen, with being at the forefront of this movement, but how would you communicate this concept to someone who doesn't know what the term regenerative tourism means? Mm. 
Yeah, um, I I, uh, I feel slightly concerned about answering this question with the likes of Anna Pollock and Michelle <laughs> Holiday potentially listening to me um, because they'll know whether I've been really grasping the concept properly or not. But <laughs> I think the way I try and, I guess, make it accessible to other people is that quite you know simple term that it's about leaving a place better than, than you found it as opposed to sustainability, which might be trying to manage the negative outcomes. And this is about trying to create truly positive change for future generations. Uh, but then, you know, there's, there's, there's layers to it. And, you know, for me, the layers are firstly the true partnership with, with our Māori. This is their concept. Kaitiaki, our love of place, protection of it, putting people first. This is their concept. So how do we work with them and respectfully translate that into the work that we're trying to do? Um, I think is really important. And then, of course, community. So it's their place to share. It's our community's place to share. It's not for any local government organisation to start deciding how that place should be shared and developed. It absolutely needs to be community-led. And that's, there's so much power in that because once we had defined our DNA with our community, they wanted to see the DNA then protected for future generations. So each part of that DNA, so that might be everything from, we talk about culture, the culture of a place, could be the surf culture of Mount Monganui. What do we actively do and develop to make sure that that surf culture from the 50s is retained and that community have real buy-in to wanting to do that? Let's get all those old surf memorabilia pictures out and put them on display. Let's tell the stories of the board you know, makers and board writers who have, have really you know, been the foundation of, of this culture here in this place. It could be about the horticulture. How do we create the food story, and this is something we've been very active in. What, what is our food story, and how do we really um, develop that for the future? And our Māori culture, what are the stories of Amoana Nui Atoi, and how do we tell those into the future? So I guess it's absolutely about the environment, but it's also about these other things that this place wants to make sure is held on to into the future. It could be a language. Um, you know, obviously te reo is really important, but but other aspects too of, of this place's culture. And that's going to be unique to every other place. So what do you see as the RTO's role in all of this, in progressing this this idea of leaving our place better than, than we found it? Mm. I think it's fundamental. And I didn't really realise when we set out how fundamental it was um, we have this unique ability to be able to connect community and place together and work in partnership with many other stakeholders to, to do that as well. I would love to see a national destination management approach that has regeneration at its, at its heart. I was encouraged to hear our minister talking about it in, at Trends. Virtually fell off my seat, actually, but... Um, I, <laughs> And he said that he said the word more than once too. <laughs> uh, so I guess how do we put our money where our mouth is around this stuff? And 
we've we've tried to I guess move from beyond just being a thought leader someone who's talking about this concept is oh yeah okay that sounds right what does it actually mean what do we do what are we doing and move into thought leadership and you know that's taken a little bit of time to really get very active uh, and have have many examples that we can call on but you know in the last year or so we've absolutely got those now and so when I am asked to speak I try and talk about that leadership in action and give people tangible ideas about what they could try or do differently which is not at all to say we're an expert because we're not we're we are like taking real baby steps uh, it's a long way to go so you know regeneration for us is a 30-year vision and so you know we're at the very formative part of it and, and we're not kidding anyone this is going to take every one of those 30 years to get there yeah I think that's one of the beautiful things about this type of work though is that it is you know regenerative tourism is about it's a practice right is how we often talk about it and it is ongoing and and it's about you know sharing those stories and challenges along the way that can can help others to come along on the journey as well which is actually partly what we're trying to do with this podcast right Debbie like just Mm -hmm. trying to create another platform where we can continue to talk about these things because it's so important to bring people along so important and thank you for doing this yeah it's really great yeah no it's okay we're learning a lot too so so go ahead and speak to some of those examples that you were just mentioning Kristen because I think it is important for people to hear that yeah so for me the the practice that we've really focused on has been two things and um, one is this elevation of indigenous wisdom into mainstream destination management and I'll talk more about how we try and ensure that that happens. And then the other one is working with this community-inspired vision for various parts of our, of our place and creating mechanisms or ways to continue to connect in with the community and, and have that passion continue to ignite the work that we do. So um, I'll, I'll break that down a little bit. But in terms of indigenous wisdom and, and how we can as you know, authentically as possible apply that into destination management. We've really tried to ensure that our relationships with Hapu and Niwi are front and centre. We've completely changed how we operate as an organisation to make sure that we are beginning our own journey around tikanga, um, around te reo, around understanding the protocols, um, both as an organisation that we use internally and then how we might present ourselves externally in, in situations. So simple things like we start our meetings with um, karakia, we have all tried to learn our pepiha as best as possible. Um, we really try and understand tikanga, we have a waiata, just the, the basic, you know, kind of, I guess, hygiene factors that we should all know as New Zealanders. And, and be able to, to practice. Um, we try and have our documentation as multilingual as possible. Um, we always, you know, have the translation of our roles, of our organisation name, of um, Te Nui Atoi. We try and translate all the important words uh, into into both English and Māori. And then we hired 
two and a half years ago now, um, Simon Phillips, who came from New Zealand Māori Tourism, and he's just been wonderful. And we've made more progress in the last two and a half years than we would have made in the next 20 um, without him. And so that was about saying to uh, our iwi leaders, we're really serious about this stuff, actually. We're not just talking about it. We're just, we don't just want stuff from you. We want to be able to give, give back. And we want to genuinely try and develop cult, the cultural proposition in Taronga Moana with you. How do we do that? So his job was to, was to create those relationships and those partnerships. And then he um, has created a, a ROPU group, group, or several of them actually across the bay, and just a few weeks ago, we launched the Taronga Moana Incorporated Society, um, which is a collection of 14 cultural businesses, some who were already going, some who are start-up, um, some who are yet to kind of get going, but they're working together in you know, truth collaboration. So there's no competition here, and it's extraordinary. When I look at that group of businesses versus maybe some other industry bodies and I think this is the way to work together and that it's truly about you know filling each other's baskets and you know the them all being stronger for, for working together and I guess that's a lot about getting us the stories told truthfully so Nanaya Mahuta um, at the Indigenous Summit in Waitangi, which would be four years ago, maybe more, challenged us to tell the truth. Are you marketing people telling the truth? And I thought, oh my gosh, no, we are, <laughs> we are so far from telling the truth. Um, so we are very conscious to try and tell our truth now in our storytelling. And just this year, we're seeing our marketing and promotion and communications fundamentally change to trying to be much more authentically uh, our DNA, uh, much more authentic about the people that, that um, you know, call the Bay home. And we have a cultural advisor, for example, for all of our major communications now. And um, his name's Josh Tsukani. He's a local. He's absolutely wonderful. And he just points us in the right direction and say, okay, if you do it that way, this is kind of how it's going to represent. But if you do it this way, it's going to be much more authentic. And so that has um, completely changed our, our whole marketing approach. So yeah, that infusion, I guess, of, of that into this mainstreamness and trying to do it in a way that's respectful and, and isn't in any way tokenistic. And that, that comes from an authentic desire for partnership and engagement has been fundamental and again you can't just say you're going to do something and you can't just hire someone to do it for you it takes a lot of time before you ask for anything at all and I imagine there were challenges through that process and probably still might be challenges just in, I mean I know you've got some other other um, aspects you want to talk about but I, I just was sticking with this for a minute is it possible to you know were the challenges that you've encountered along the way in this process, in the truth telling and being really authentic about your messaging and, and like you say, not just tokenism. Mm. I think the first challenge is um, understanding our own um, unintended biases. And I'm, I'm 
convinced today, even when I stand up and speak, that I'm probably still conveying things that are probably some of our kaumatua would go, oh, my God, Kristen. Um, <laughs> you know, so I have, we have so much to learn. Um, so I think that sort of unintended bias and racism, which can just happen without, without even thought. Um, and then I think, you know, building the relationships first so that there's a genuine sense of trust before we get down to any form of business. Um, and having that true intent and you know, putting our money where our mouth was was really important. It was like, no, we, we really value this. We literally value this. And some people probably didn't agree with that investment and probably still don't. Uh, have we struck racism? 100% yes. Uh, we sent out newsletters which have a mix of Toreo and English in them and I would get complaints about those. Um, and, you know, you see that in other stories around the country. One just this week, wasn't there? Um, so not everyone agrees with where we're trying to go and that has to be okay. Um, and sometimes it doesn't feel okay. Um, sometimes they're the noisiest, kind of squeakiest wheels who attract a lot of attention from other stakeholders and then you end up in a bit of damage control or trying to justify. But for me, pers- and the team have struggled. They struggle if there is some criticism. It's always hard. Um, for me personally, I've sort of so intent on this purpose now that I can kind of let that go. Okay. Your um, awareness will grow, hopefully. And if not, it's still the right thing to do. Um, so not all, not always easy. And then, you know, there's so many relationships to build. So you can't possibly, you know, we talk about trying to be um, co-creative and uh, work, work together in, in partnership. But you can't sort of do that with everyone all at once. You know, like you have to start with a, with a group of like-minded individuals and then try and grow it out from there. And it takes money, frankly, um, money that's not there in tourism in New Zealand. Uh, we, you know, we've had to prioritise what, what we would, would invest in. And so the STAP funding that we received this financial year, and hopefully uh, from the Minister's announcement, there'll also be some additional support next financial year. That's such a gift to be able to invest in these areas outside of kind of the usual remit for an RTO. Mm. Yeah, money and, and also the time, right? Because the pace of this work is, can feel quite uncomfortable for, especially for people in tourism, where it's not a familiar pace for, for this industry, right? So true. Like, and everyone's expecting results in a year, at least. How are you going with that? What's happening with this? Where are those products? You said there were going to be new products. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah what have you done with that money like you know so you're, you are constantly having to continue telling your own story yeah we love yeah. new products and tourism don't we yeah yeah <laughs> but it's work that's worth doing so you talked about you talked about the relationships you talked about that initially and then there was a second segment that you were going to go back to yeah I think this um coming back to the community and, and how they can be involved. So, I mean, at, at least 50% of my time is on engagement with some stakeholder group or, or other. And uh, 
I have been particularly active around progress groups, lion clubs, community ratepayer associations. They're trying to get out and tell our story to help bring people on, on this journey. When you talk about love of place protection of future generations, pretty much everyone's hooked um, because they can all buy into that. So we, we've tried to change how we talk about things. We don't ever talk about climate change. It's just a political football that isn't even worth trying to, you know, win an argument about. We try and relate it to a much more personable kind of basis about grandchildren and, you know, um, future species and, yeah, and, and leave those other debates to, to other people. Um, so you need to be very active in, in your community, of course, and for them to feel like they, ha they have a someone they can come to. And, you know, my face is, you know, on every everything. <laughs> um, and they can email me uh, with feedback, which often happens. And I think it's taking the time to listen to that feedback and try and understand it. And But also we've, we've created passion groups. So based on the DNA components, which is the horticultural provenance, um, natural landmarks, Maori culture, and also oceans and beaches. Uh, yeah. So based on those areas of the DNA, we've created passion groups. And that's a group of people who are passionate about that particular area. And it's everyone from, say, an environmentalist to a surfer, to a surf shop, to a cafe that might be uh, operating in the, in the, on the foreshore or a camping ground, etc., to marine biologists. And they come together to think about how would we develop this um, part of our DNA and how would we tell the stories of it in a way that is kaitiaki, that is going to protect it for future generations. And how do we think about this from a social, cultural, environmental and economic perspective? And then they have created basically marketing plans which is both about how could we develop this further so it's retained in our DNA, it's not lost for future generations, and then what are the stories that are, we are uncovering really quite spontaneously around it. We're more advanced with horticultural provenance than probably anything, so that's a group who is everything from a grower to a restaurateur to Zespri in the middle. They've got a marketing plan, and we're just now helping to enact it. And part of that is creating a food brand. We've targeting a whole lot of journalists to come here to, to, to now experience the food experience. We did a Dine on a Lime promotion. I saw that. That looks, yeah, that looked fantastic. <laughs> yeah, well, Lime Global are trying to steal it from us. And of course, we didn't bother trademarking it because we didn't think it would really <laughs> catch that much attention. But, and again, we're really happy to, to share. So, but that group of people, they're really passionate about food and about the growing of food in our place, the protection of it in order to enable that to keep happening. So it just has this wonderful spontaneity to it and energy that we couldn't possibly give or find within an organisation. And so the advancement that we're making in those spaces is extraordinary and it's coming down to this passion. And then... We have a um, tool that we've developed um, with Destination Think. It's their tool called Passionography. So how do we find the passion 
match the passion of our people with the passion of visitors and put them together and let them talk to each other. So rather than me being on this podcast, for example, we might have a really passionate foodie on our food podcast being, you know, um, listened to by people who, who aren't residents, who are visitors, and they're telling the story. And that's, that's where, we, where we're heading here. And then you match the passion of your local with the passion of your visitor. And it's just this wonderful symbiosis for, for both parties because the, vis- the visitor obviously gets to be more connected with our residents and the residents get to learn from the visitors and there's value, right? That's net. That's getting towards net value. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it's no longer just a transaction. So we've got, uh, I guess, a passionography report on each of our preferred target audiences. And as you said at the beginning, Debbie, choosing who you want to visit is a really important conversation. And that's, again, coming back to net value. It helps give you a much better sense of who's valuable as opposed to it feeling like it's out of control. And so we have a passionography report on each of the four sort of chosen audiences. And the cool thing is how you talk to them is through their passion. It's so obvious when you say it, but we, until you see it and you go, okay, well, the ocean beaches and surf lovers, they're passionate about these things. They listen to these podcasts. They read these books. They look at these magazine titles or not. You know, these are the, these are the areas where you will connect with their passion. Well, create communications that are going to be reflective of that passion I mean, or, or find spokespeople who can really authentically speak on that passion, let them go. Like the, the DMO, the RTO, we need to get the hell out of the way actually and stop thinking that we're the voice of truth for our regions because we are not. Yeah. And the way you're talking resonates so strongly with this living systems language that we've been learning about how these stories and ideas are emerging. I think you said spontaneously, but you know, these these things are coming out of out of these collaborations and these conversations and this shared passion, I think that's so exciting and there's a lot of hope in that. Yeah, it is. It is really exciting. And you're bringing people together who haven't been brought together in this way before, I'm guessing, right, in your area? Oh, definitely. So that's the diverse parts too, like people from, like you say, the surfers with other, you know, restaurateurs or different people from different, people yeah. from different you know, aspects. It is exciting. Yeah, and I think then that we don't have to be kind of the, the one in the middle. Like we're, we're trying to connect and, and collaborate. But then we just let everyone speak for themselves. And so there's diversity of thought because of the diversity of people. And it's not about us trying to wrangle anyone in a, in a certain direction. They, they're self-organizing. They're self-organizing. And that is really important. With the support and structure of the, the passion group, but they're allowed to, you know, their own ideas and visions are allowed to emerge from that. That's beautiful. I love it. Yeah, and so I'm hoping um, this isn't going to be something that I'm going to have a, a huge impact on going going forward, but I'm hoping that this team uh, at Tourism Bay of Plenty next financial year evolve to have passion managers. So a, a marketing person who was responsible for one part of the DNA each and working with these passion groups and also industry clusters uh, in order to 
really develop and tell the stories within that area. But so I should just say too, when we talk about development, um, we're trying to develop through a totally different lens as well. And this is, you know, we're still really, we're practicing. We're definitely practicing here. Um, as to how we can bring hapu, iwi um, together on a, on a development, particularly if it's for an, a piece of um, a, one of our natural landmarks. And how do we make sure that it's hapu or iwi-led, what the future of that place is and what stories might be told around it and what the experience might look like. And that it's very environmentally focused, so cultural, environmental kind of is the first two, but then who are the community that, are, that surround that place and what are their views on it? Uh, and then the economics, it's sort of, it, it's an outcome potentially, if everyone else agrees that there is, a, there is an economic outcome to it. So, yeah, I don't, I don't want to, I guess, be talking about development without saying that there is this new filter, which is basically the full well-beings. Mm, yeah, not just focused on economic development. Yeah, and I'm still surprised at how little we talk about economics or um, holistic economics in New Zealand. You mean you hear about it, but I don't, you don't hear enough about it, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's starting, we're starting to see more, more organizations talking about this and more people, you know, different podcasts. And I think it's starting, but it's, it's slow, slow uptake. Hopefully a listener out there will challenge us on that and send us a whole listing of everything that's happening in that area that we're not aware of, because that's also what needs to happen, right? We need to be looking outside of our industry and really looking across sectors, which it sounds like you're doing with your passion groups um, to learn from each other. Cause there is so much good work happening already. So how can we, you know, be on a collective journey? Yeah, absolutely. I guess the final question that we that we have is for you, Kristen, what, what is a reimagined tourism industry for Aotearoa or for the Bay of Plenty uh, look like for you? So when COVID happened, and boy, didn't it take us all by surprise, I mean, we have a pretty good risk system here. Um, full global closure of our borders was not on our risk register. Um, <laughs> You know, we thought pandemic, it might have been to one or two countries. Um, so, you know, I think it was just so shocking and there was so much uh, grief and stress and just fear. And for us, quite quickly, we were able to feel much more comfortable because we had to hard boy in its second generation by then. We, we had our plan and it was already pushing the boat quite far out. Like, so if if we talk about reimagination, we were already in that reimagination space or we were in the imagination space. We didn't know we had to reimagine it. We were just trying <laughs> to imagine a different future. Um, so in reimagining it, we just kept going with where we were trying to go in the first place. And it was a great answer to the question of what's your plan? Well, he, he, here it is. This is, the fu- this is the future. But it needed to then have a, a level of... Um, pragmatism around the operators and and how we could support them and an enormous amount of effort from the team to support operators and and do more in the promotion space than, than we were doing before. So I guess there was a sort of a it was like start, restart, reimagine or something. So there were there were three components to it. 
which was totally acknowledging the devastation to the tourism industry without just trying to talk about this ideological future state, right? It had to be a combination of those two things. And our third iteration of Tahatapoi this financial year will be very much a reflection on, on what's happened and what we can do to help uh, in the current state, but also keep working, keep moving towards this, this future state. So for me, the reimagination is, is the continuation of what we're already doing, which is why I was really thrilled to be part of the advisory group to the Futures Task Force and to have Anna Pollock on that task force, which you know, we did a fair bit of lobbying for, because, of course, I wanted what we were doing regionally to become what we imagined nationally or globally, preferably. And I think that was a fantastic piece of work. And I know from being inside of it, there were sort of, I guess, in total maybe 45 people who agreed with each other. And we were very, from very different backgrounds and, and parts of the industry, the sector. We, we all believed in, in, in where that got to. And so it's been disappointing to not understand how that might, that might move forward. So for me, if I, could make, if I were in a position of, of influence, I would establish some kind of national organisation for tourism who truly led it. So whether that's a ministry with a chief executive or it's the National Destination Management Organisation who has a person in charge of it, uh, because there's wonderful leadership right across the sector, but there's no one leader. And so who is actually, who do we point to? Who do we call on to say, lead us in this? I think that's, that's critical. I think we need to look at the funding because we're trying to do a really important job without the funds that are required to be able to do what we're talking about here today. I mean, hardly any of the RTOs have that. Um, and it should be related to, to the level of visitor that you have in, in your region in some way, whether that's a levy or a tax or a, I, I don't really mind. I just think what it can't be is the community, the ratepayers trying to pay for everything because then it's got a natural cap to it. And then I think it would be wonderful to have a national strategy that we're actually going to implement. So I don't want another one that is a bunch of words on a page. I'd really like one that we're going to implement and has someone responsible and in charge of it, of its outcomes, of its actions, of its deliverables. And I don't know who that is right now. Uh, and then I think, you know, any combination of the the task force report and the parliamentary commissioner and the environment commissioner and the climate change staff bring that all together into some actions. And I really believe the sector would get behind it, but we, I think we're lacking that. Yeah, no, great vision, Kristen. You're not alone in, in looking for that leadership and, and nationwide strategy as well. So thanks for reiterating that. Appreciate it. I think that you're, leadership and courage in the Bay of Plenty is an awesome example for other regions to look to, but also for that national vision to look to. So I really admire your work there. Thanks. I hope so. And I mean, as you will know, I have um, resigned my tenure at uh, Tourism Bay of Plenty and it was a really heart-wrenching decision actually and it still chokes me up um, because 
we have this extraordinary opportunity to really have impactful influence on our place and its people and its future generations. And I, I hope that we've left, I've left enough of a, a starting point that it, that it will continue into the future. And of course, that's my deep fear that it, that it won't. But I can't be a control freak. I um, need to um, allow the, the energy of others to come in and been here over sort of seven years now. And um, my ideal um, is, to, to, is to be able to contribute at a national uh, level to this. But in the meantime, uh, people are wanting to get hold of me. I'm still at Tourism Bay of Plenty for another few months, but um, my new email address is Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-I-N, at bloomconsulting.nz. So anyone who wants to talk about this stuff, I have all the time in the world for it. That's fantastic. I think you're going to get some uh, some emails, I'm sure. Kristen at bloomconsulting.nz, and we will make sure that's in the show notes too because uh, these conversations need to happen, and if you're at the forefront of them, then we'll we'll be moving in the right direction, that's for sure. Thank you so much for your time and, and for your sharing your your wisdom as well. It's been wonderful. Awesome. Thanks so much. I look forward to hearing all the other um, podcasts and learning from, from them too. So listeners, now we come to the reflection part of our podcast that we're looking to do after each conversation to encourage us all to think more deeply about some of the insights and wisdom that was shared by our guests. So clearly there was a lot of richness in our conversation with Kristen and following the conversation we had last week with Anna, uh, where she laid out the foundation really of regenerative tourism and regenerative thinking. I think what Kristen has described is a beautiful model of what this can look like in practice. Yeah, Kristen started out by talking about how they in the Bay of Plenty went looking for this human truth and came out with this idea of a collective love of place from all of these different, you know, diverse people within their community. They had this shared love of place and and they used that as a way of beginning this journey to develop what she called their community DNA. Um, And developing that helped them to understand that if they establish who they are authentically and then show that to the world, then people will come and the right type of visitors will will come. Mm -hmm. And from that developed their, you know, they developed their destination management framework and plan, right? That came out of that. And that is an ongoing practice where she really highlighted two areas, the elevation of indigenous wisdom and working with the community um, to keep their community inspired vision going. Those things both came through so strongly in everything she said. And we're going to be talking more about this living systems approach to, to tourism. But I think Kristen's example of these passionography groups was a perfect way of explaining how this living systems theory can be put into practice. She talked about a diverse group of people with different interests, different motivators coming together around a shared passion. And she talked about the spontaneous energy that came from that and the way that that became self-organizing, which shows that they as a group were alive. Mm-hmm. And that new ideas emerged from that, right? This new life came from 
from that, which is a beautiful example of a living systems model. Perfect. So sometimes it's hard. Yeah. Sometimes it can be abstract, but this, she, she clearly laid out for us what it can look like in practice. So our offering is that while recognizing that uh, each place and community will do, will go through this process, hopefully in their own way, there are so many gems and so much wisdom to be taken from Kristen and the work that is happening in the Bay of Plenty. And Kristen invited listeners to reach out to her um, because she said she could talk about this forever. She's clearly passionate. So please, we encourage you to do so. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of Good Awaits. It's been a pleasure to, to bring this conversation to you. Thanks so much again to Kristen Dunn for joining us on the podcast for this episode. And if this has resonated with you listeners or you feel called to get involved, please send us your takeaways or your inspirations, what you feel called to do as a result of this conversation. We'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us via our website. You can leave comments there on goodawaits.podbean.com or on our Instagram and Facebook at goodawaits. Our episodes of Good Awaits are out every Wednesday morning, New Zealand time. You can find us on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. If you do want to be notified every time a new episode comes out, you can subscribe on your podcast app. And if you would like to leave us a review, we would really love to receive your feedback. Thanks also to the Good Awaits team for your support. To Erin Carnes for your graphics design. Clary Macklin for your wonderful music and production. And Josie, I want to thank you as well for your ongoing hours of editing. This is We're still having fun, so that's a good thing. And thanks also to you, Debbie. It's been, it's continuing to be a lot of fun working with you and and, uh, thank you for everything that you bring to this podcast. So thanks again, listeners, for listening to Good Awaits. It's great to have you join us as we harvest the stories of our regenerative tourism journey in New Zealand. Mm